This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. So we're walking along the cliffs at the moment and this is part of the North Downs. Uh, the North Downs run from Surrey, Farnham in Surrey, all the way round to Dover. And that's where we're walking now, along the section where we have Dover below us, this very active port, this constant hum of traffic and lorries. And when you look down on it, do you know it's like a giant skeletric set, isn't it, with the ramps that <laughs> go up and all the tracks that go round. Um, so we've got that modern industry. And then if we look behind us, we have high on the hill there the magnificent Dover Castle. What a wonderful setting. And we're going to walk along the path here. I'm with Brian Whitaker of the National Trust because for this week's Open Country, I suppose uh, what I'm getting now at the start of the programme is the most tremendous bird's eye view because I'm looking down over, I think it's 100 metres high. 100 metres, yes. <laughs> because I'm on top of what it has to be one of the most iconic images in our landscape, the White Cliffs of Dover. And in a year when all eyes are on Britain for lots of different reasons and many people will be arriving on these shores for some their first sight is going to be of these symbolic cliffs the rain does a fantastic job keeping the cliffs white um, because there's a little bit of mixture in there with uh, carbon and causing a little bit of acid to sort of erode that through but it is as you said earlier it's one of the real symbols which is you come in on a ferry it's instantly recognisable so Brian and I are walking along side by side on the path and just behind us is Rob Sonnen who is a ranger for this particular area and while we have this whiteness which is very strong in bright light isn't it yes, right. there are sort of swathes of green and in that what a wonderful collection of colours pinks, yellows, whites you know deeper yellows, lighter yellows there's a lot going on The reason why uh, chalk grassland you see a lot of these flowers is because there's very low nutrients it's very well drained so there's not much water there and it gets very warm quickly as well so a lot of the taller plants and grasses can't dominate so no one plant dominates it allows a lot of the lower species of plant to come through so you had the horseshoe vetches these are sane foin the these are quite scarce pink taller pink ones quite these, scarce aren't yeah. they and actually um it's one like, of the um, species that we need to look after in this country but that's partly because it's an arable flower that's in decline. But on the cliffs here, locally, on the coast, they're very abundant. And is this a great feasting ground for wildlife, is it? Despite all the, the, the rip and roar of traffic down below in the port? It is indeed, yes. Uh, we have a good number of butterflies here. Um, in fact, the area below us is known as the tramway, which was cleared for chalk for the harbour. Um, and that does seem to get a f little few degrees warmer. So that's one of our really good spots for butterflies down there, just because I think the sun reflects off the chalk wall. Yeah, they absorb that yes. heat. They just love yes. it. But you would normally get those uh, chalk-loving butterflies, like the blue Adonis? That's right. We have all the blue species of butterfly here, so apart from the large blue. But we have the small blue, Adonis blue, chalk hill blue. And the Adonis and chalk hill blue um, are reliant on this horseshoe vetch. Now we're heading towards a lighthouse. So the lighthouse that uh, will come into view when we get on the top of the hill is South Foreland Lighthouse and the lighthouse is the first place to see sunrise in the winter months. 
but it was also uh, in the 1800s was the uh, place where Marconi and Faraday were doing their experiments um, both for doing ship to shore uh, was the first ship to shore message was done from that lighthouse and also it was the first lighthouse where they had used electricity to power the light. Now we're beginning to get an idea of how special this particular landscape is because of the visual uh, impact of it but because of its place in the history of Britain. So let's head towards the lighthouse then. Now we're coming to an area here where you've actually got you've got ponies grazing. Are they National Trust? These are our Exmoor ponies. We have 14 in our herd altogether although there's 11 here and three over at St Margaret's on some other sites there. But they manage the land for you? And yes, exactly that. They're doing exactly as you see they're doing now grazing to keep the grasses down and allow the smaller flowers that we've been talking about to come through. So we've walked up the cliff path and on a fine day we would be looking straight across to see the tip of the South Foreland Lighthouse. Brian, you said the National Trust own, was it seven Yes, yeah, seven kilometres out of the 16 kilometres that make up what's called the White Cliffs, but there are some bits that we don't own and an opportunity's come up for us to acquire mm-hmm. it uh, and that's something that uh, is now forming the basis of an appeal to try and see whether we can save this as well for the nation. How important is it to preserve the White Cliffs of Dover? Incredibly important. Oh. It's a symbol for everyone in the country, not just local people. It epitomises what the country stands for. There's a sense of pride, heritage and history. For some reason it has an iconic status. I think because it's one landscape that's instantly recognisable by everyone. So if you show an image of the White Cliffs of Dover, people know where they are. And it stands as a symbol in the same way that the Statue of Liberty does for America. It's a key symbol. You see it every day of your working Mm. life. Yes, and it's still... I'm so lucky to be able to call this my office, you know. Right, oh gosh, I <laughs> wasn't expecting this. Um, now, this is a really narrow channel. It's man-made concrete structure with an iron, huge iron gate um, on this. I have to go down through this. I don't like the look of this at all. I have to really crouch down. Ah, and in and along. Oh! <sighs> that was quite an entrance. <laughs> this is known as... This is the drop redoubt. The Drop Redoubt? Yes. Redoubt is in...? A redoubt is, a, is a, an independent fortress. Well, this White Cliffs coastline does have um, an incredible military history, you know, down through hundreds and hundreds of years. And being with John Iveson from the Dover Museum, who's a military historian, well, this is you're a great person to be with when we go and discover a little bit of the, the military history of the coastline. So what I'd love to hear, John, is a potted history, as it were, of the strategic and military story that goes with this particular landscape. Where do we start? Well, I think probably we'd be better starting on the top of the fort. Um, The reason being that we can actually see what we're talking about from up there. Okay. This is where you you can describe the history of Dover most adequately from because you can see it all laid out before you I suppose most people would think back to the Romans the first invasion by the Romans, well Julius Caesar was the first but I'm not sure that he was actually invading wasn't he, he came for sort of diplomatic reasons his first um, landings which were probably along the coast of Deal um, he describes in, in Gallic Wars 
and he describes um, javelins being thrown at him from the top of Dover Cliffs. And that's why he moved down to a safer landing place uh, somewhere further down the coast. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until nearly 100 years later that Claudius landed in Britain and and Roman Britain became established in AD 43. What remnants are there, if any, of those first Roman investigations of our coastline and then they're taking over, you know, this, this stretch of land? Is there anything left of that? Where we're standing here, we can see the evidence of the Roman conquest we're looking across towards the east, towards Dover Castle, and just in front of the uh, church on the horizon is a sort of ragged-looking building, which is the remains of a Roman pharos, a Roman lighthouse, which is, is the tallest Roman structure in Britain and one of only three in, in, in the world. When in history, then, did the White Cliffs of Dover become such a strong emblem of nationhood? I don't think I can answer that question because I, I don't actually know. It's such a strong symbol. I don't really know when, whether there was a, a moment when someone suddenly decided, this is, this is us. I think, I think it, it, it sort of grew and grew and grew. So I, I don't think there's a, a moment that you can say it began there. But it was very often a feature of nations at war. Yes. I mean, after the loss of Normandy, the loss of our Angevin Empire, or the Angevin Empire, um, in King John's reign, then the channel became more of a barrier than, than it had been before. Prior to that, we had a, a, a united Europe, I suppose, that was, was ruled by an itinerant king who was moving around his various kingdoms, his various possessions, um, King Henry II, and he built Dover Castle um, as a symbol of that power. So if we start with the, the Roman pharos that I've just described, you've got standing just behind it uh, a church which is 10th century. So that's an Anglo-Saxon church, a very large Anglo-Saxon church, um, in a very interesting position on the cliffs here. Down in the town, you will have at that, that period the remains of the Saxon shore fort, um, a fort built against Saxon invaders by the Romans. And then we come along to, um, to 1066, mm, the Normans, when, of when the Normans arrived yeah. further down the coast mm-hmm. um, and marched along the coast, burning as they came. And they arrived at Dover, burned Dover, and spent eight days fortifying or re-fortifying, depending on how you define it, something at Dover. During Henry, Henry VIII's reign, we were very worried about Fran- Francis I and his ambitions. And the idea was that the French forces would land somewhere on Romney Marsh, come round behind just Dover... Just along to the west. Yeah, mm-hmm. come round behind Dover and capture it from the landward side so that he could bring his, his forces, his, his artillery, his, his horses ashore. And right the way through Dover's history, from then on, that is, that is the plan of, of all of the, the, the possible invaders. That was Napoleon's idea, that was Hitler's idea. He was, he was going to land his parachute troops somewhere between here and Folkestone, bring his tanks ashore somewhere, somewhere down there on the marsh, come round behind Dover, capture it from the landward side. It's amazing, isn't it, just that such a small place... We're just talking about a few miles of the southeast coast can figure so much in a nation's history. Scratch any place and you find, you find history. But scratch Dover and, and, and it goes back millennia. There's nothing to match that castle. Or those cliffs. Or those cliffs. Now, it was one thing to stand at the top of the cliffs and look down, but I think if you want to get a true sense of how they tower above you, you have to go down to the base, which is what I'm doing now, down some steps onto Shakespeare Beach, this is known as. It's 
a shingle beach, but the pebbles, look at that, they're tiny. Look, you can scoop them up in your hand, hundreds of them. Isn't that lovely? Look at the colours. We've got creams and browns and ochres and blues. How beautiful is that? And I'm with Melanie Wrigley, and I could be with no better person at this particular moment because as a geologist, look what I hold in my hands. Lots of tiny flint pebbles here, and the flint comes from within the chalk. It's mainly in the upper chalk, but that's where the origin of flint is. The chalk gets washed away, and this is what remains behind. Now, the first thing people will say, well, actually, it's not that white. It's a more a creamy colour and there are shades of grey in it and then sometimes the, the vegetation looks as though almost it's like a green soup which has been spilt down the side yeah. of the cliff and <laughs> it's sort of stuck onto the chalk. The, the chalk is a fascinating rock because not many people realise it's, it's a biological deposit and so is the flint. It was formed in the Cretaceous era of geological time, which was about 65 to 144 million years ago. And then the White Cliffs of Dover came about. In the last Ice Age, we were joined to France by a land bridge. To the east of that land bridge, the Thames and the Rhine were draining into a big freshwater glacial lake. And this big, big lake was building up with the meltwater from the glaciers on the eastern side of the land bridge. At that time around the world, uh, the climate was warming, the polar caps were beginning to melt, and the sea started encroaching up from the Cornwall end. From the west, From the west, it was gradually, sea level was rising up. Then the geologists believed there was some big major geological thing that happened, and they believed that there was an earthquake here, fractured the land bridge and billions and billions of tons of water came flooding and flooded down and created the channel that we've got today. So now, Melanie, we have to crane our necks up to the very peak there. There is a bit of an overhang on the top. There is. um, So you can see how, you know, at some point that is going to become, you know, part of the pile of rocks that we have, not just rocks and boulders Huge that have fallen down here quite a while ago, I presume, because there's a bit of vegetation growing on the pile of rubble. What you can see are the horizontal lines that run through. So different layers that were set down over, you know, the different thousands of years, I presume. That's right. It's over millions and millions of years. Oh. Apparently, it takes something like 100,000 years for a vertical centimetre of chalk rock like this to be formed. When we look up at the White Cliffs, you can see lines in the cliffs and there's sort of little knobbly bits and there's smoother bits, but they're in lines. Now, they're the bedding planes. That's how the chalk was laid down originally. So they're, all those lines are representing what was the seabed at one time and then another layer's come down and got compacted on it and then another layer and another layer and so it's built up so the oldest rocks are at the base of the cliffs and the youngest rocks are at the top of the cliffs so it's a calendar isn't it it's a diary it's it's the journal of you know such ancient times it's part of our british heritage i always think really to to get a true sense of the white cliffs of dover you have to start as we did at the top but you can't leave it at that. You've got to come down and take a look up. Yeah, come down. That's the full story then. And look up, but be very careful. Don't get too close. 
set on the top of the cliff and this is the Coast Guard station. Now you know in other visits with open country to Coast Guard stations they've just been little huts on the hill but this is a really modern impressive setup that you've got here. I'm in the this is the operations room I take This it. is the operations room yes. Um, and I'm with uh, Kames Beasley and there are people working on monitors you know there are communications coming in and out all the time but the view we have too is across the channel and down to the port and the ferry there, just heading out uh, towards the, the gap in the harbour walls. So a great visual position, but you can in a way see and, and hear so much more, can't you? Yes, that's correct. Um, we're here at uh, the Dover RCC, one of, not, one of 19 uh, maritime rescue coordination centres in the UK. Here at Dover we have uh, several functions. We're performing search and rescue for the Dover district, and we're also providing what's known as the Channel Navigation Information Service, which is the radar surveillance function for the Dover Strait Traffic Separation Scheme. I saw the radar spinning on top of the roof when I was arriving. Yep. So it's picking up that information all the time. That's correct. We're continuously monitoring the movements of vessels in the Dover Strait because we're checking to make sure the vessels are complying with what they're supposed to do with regards to the international regulations for preventing collisions at sea and also that vessels are observing what's called the mandatory reporting system in the strait. Well, it's got quite busy in the, uh, in, in the room at the moment. So can we go up and look out from, from here at all, Kames? Where we are um, situated up uh, on the cliffs above Dover, it is a very nice place to work, quite frankly. So, uh, yeah, if we pop outside and you can see the views. It's such a lovely sight to work at because you come in in the morning and you know, obviously every day isn't like today down the end of the building there you've just got the view across to the South Foreland and across the cliffs and it's just a nice place to come and reflect for a few minutes before starting work. Even with that mechanical whir of the the radar on the top of this tower just you know spinning round and round really quite fast. Yes this is one of um, several radar head that we have feeding into our system here um, so this is a permanent feature. Now when you're, you're, when you're working up here, the noise sort of actually just blends into the background and should it stop, then it's actually noticeable in its absence. And what we're seeing here today with you, Kames, is um, the result of a couple of centuries of guarding the coast, protecting the coastline, you know, you could go back to the smuggling days, helping people who were shipwrecked, you know, the story of the Coast Guard you know, here is very much about the history of what happened out on these waters, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, I, mean, I suppose the, um, the conventional image of a Coast Guard is a bearded old chap in, a, in an old lookout with some binoculars <laughs> looking out over the water. As you can see, it's not that case anymore. Part of us are doing search and rescue. Some of us are doing survey and inspection on vessels visiting UK ports. Regular Coast Guards, we're based in operations rooms and with a coordinating authority. So should somebody indicate that they're in distress at sea or on, in trouble on the cliffs or coastline, um, then they'll contact us. We're a 999 responder. And what we do is we will coordinate it. We will task appropriate resources to provide assistance and then we'll coordinate the movements of those resources. But it, it just sort of is underpinned by the three central tenets of what we do, which is safer lives, safer ships and cleaner seas. That's, that sums up our role, quite frankly. And as a location for you to work, we've been hearing about 
the geology of the rocks and the history of this landscape and its place in the hearts of the nation. You just come here to work every day. Do you get any of that? Um, yes, I do, quite frankly. Like I say, I, I, I come out here in the mornings um, when I've come into work first and I have my cup of tea and I'm looking at the view and I do think, I, I think, gosh, I'm awfully lucky to work here because it is a lovely place to work. Dover... Dover Coast Guard if you're at sea everybody has heard of Dover Coast Guard because of where we are you just see the cliffs and you know where you are yes without any technology people just know yes I'm at the white cliffs of Dover yes exactly yes not many bluebirds today though I don't think (laughs) no story of the white cliffs of Dover would be complete without the voice of one particular person so I've left the cliffs I've come to East Sussex to the home of Dame Vera Lynn. It was so much of this part of the country and um, it's symbolic of, of, of us here and um, it's always been a spot when people sailed away, when the boys sailed away from home. This was the last view they had of their homeland. And when they were heading off to war, they must also have thought... I hope one day I will see these cliffs again. Oh, I'm sure, yes. yes. And, uh, of course, some, a lot of them did, and some of them, unfortunately, mm. didn't. I can just imagine uh, them standing there looking as they drifted away um, and seeing it, maybe thinking, maybe for the last time. But then when they returned, you know, it was, ah, here we are, we are home. And here they are again, the White Cliffs. But there was something in your song and the way you sang it that captured not just the hearts of, say, the servicemen, but of the nation. And the White Cliffs of Dover came to symbolise so so much about what Britain was then and maybe even now. So many people across the world are familiar with the White Cliffs of Dover. They haven't actually seen it themselves. They've heard about it and read about it. And and um, me, fortunately, singing a song about it helped people to, to recapture it in their mind and they could visualise it. We were speaking to the National Trust and they are running a campaign to buy a certain stretch of the White Cliffs of Dover. Yes. And you've thrown your weight behind this, haven't yes, you? Yes, because I think it's a wonderful idea. I mean, uh, who knows what somebody might do with that bit of land in the future. And it, it, it's right that some of it should be preserved for future generations. And so I hope they manage to secure it safely. We must protect it and make sure nobody messes about with it. Preserve and protect. Yes. And remember through song. Well, yes, I hope the song has done a a bit to um, bring it to the public's notice. And uh, I go around the schools, you know, talking about the... Well, answering questions, really, about the war and what we ate, what we wore, and, and they always sing that. Do you hear it in your head still? Oh, well, yes. I mean, I've only got to think of Whitecliffs of Dover and the song is there, you know, because it's something that one sees. It's not like we'll meet again, although it's a strong song and we'll survive. But the Whitecliffs, you've got to see it to appreciate it. And uh, 
when you hear the song or sing the song, it, it's there in your mind. You can see it. A little picture. The valley will bloom again. There are occasions now when I go to schools or at some reunion, and of course, it's always sung, and uh, of course, I join in. <laughs> There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow. Just you wait.